Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, a podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm joined as always by Greg. Hey there. And today we will be reviewing New Bedford. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yes, let's. We just finished up another game of Time Stories, which was super exhilarating, as always. We were playing the third official scenario, A Prophecy of Dragons. This is the first one that takes place. It says AT, which makes me think alternate timeline, but it actually took place on a different planet, which was a little bit weird. But it's the first time that we've gotten to use magic and there were lots of fantasy tropes and, you know, you had your your weapons and your armor and it, it felt very much like an old school RPG. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, of course, chose the caster and was playing the caster for most of the time. No surprises there. Not at all. But the magic system was pretty interesting and like the components, which is something that normally in like RPGs and things like that, a lot of times you just brush over but that's was one of the main things that you needed to have the right components in order to do the spells and that kind of thing right so it was really cool and there were some twists and turns in the story which was a lot of fun and uh, different ways of getting to the same spot as always and even at the very end a few throwbacks to some of our other things there was a card that we drew that was called deja vu and it it took out the art from another another card uh, from the past stories and It was just a lot of fun. Yeah, I hate that we can't get into too much detail because, you know, it's a very narrative game. And if we said anything, we'd probably spoil it. But it was a lot of fun. Very frustrating, as always. It took us four tries this time, which is a new record. But you know what? We got there in the end. So barely, very, very, very barely by the skin of our teeth, skin of our teeth. We had one out of three party members left alive. We had to crack two of what are called our beacons, which are like permanent tokens that you can break, like physically break in order to gain a one time boost. We had to spend two out of the three of those. But we did it. We did it. It was satisfying. We we managed to get through it. There's always this huge wave of relief and like pride after you finish a game of Time Stories. Um, And it's it's one of those things that makes me sad that you can't. You know, you can never replay something for the first time. Yeah. And I would very much love to do that with with this game. I agree 100 percent. And it's the kind of thing where I don't know what to do with this game after we've played through all all the ones. I don't know how long they're going to keep printing out all these different things for it. But like, you know, am I going to be able to play this game again with other people? My hope is that once they start winding down, you know, from their own publishing of, of pre-made adventures, that they release some sort of like supplement or instruction manual almost for people to build their own. They already have that. Oh, do they? Yes, they do. Oh. There are fan-made, a lot of fan-made ones out right now that you can do print and plays and other things like that. Oh, with the well, system. then we got nothing to be worried about. True. True enough. As long as we, you know, we have to look through, make sure that they're the good ones and all that kind of that's thing. That's true. That's true. Nothing with, you know, less than a four star rating. So that, that brings up another thing. Maybe we'll make our own. Maybe we will be on the lookout for a, a Dragon's Demise Time Stories adventure. That That'd would be, be a lot of fun to, to create. I will have to we'll have to put that on the list, especially the flavor text, especially the flavor text. We do have a soft spot for coming up with lore that nobody cares about and fewer people will read. Yeah, as, as we did in like the fledgling RPG world that we're working on right now. Yeah, that's maybe going somewhere. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, but that's not all we've been playing. I know you mentioned you had a chance to play Armada. No, not Armada. It was Star Wars Rebellion. 
Oh, Star Wars Rebellion. Okay. Yeah. Different Star Wars. This is the really big one that's pretty much Twilight Imperium 3 pared down a little bit and in the Star Wars universe. Oh, okay. And there are a few things that I noticed. First of all, the Star Wars flavor is great. You actually learn some new things about the universe with like the different planets that you can get and all that kind of stuff. But also, and I think especially because of the characters that you can use. So where Twilight Imperium 3 has the command tokens and things like that that you mm-hmm. get to place on different things and different actions and all that. In Star Wars Rebellion, you can just uh, use, you have to assign your leaders to different things. Oh, okay. And it's definitely much more of a constant availability of these actions than it is in TI3. But uh, it's also cool because you get to see like the names of all these other characters that you don't normally see. It's something that's nice that you get to learn a little bit about that. Sure. And I mean, people who love Star Wars always love going in deep on on that sort of thing. Yeah. And all the little details and that kind of stuff. Exactly. And the other thing that I will say is that they did a really great job of making it asymmetrical because this game is extremely asymmetrical. Like there is no symmetry at all about that. Between the Empire and the Rebels? Rebels? And that's only two factions you can play. You can either play the Empire or the Rebels and you can play either... Two to four players. Two players is one versus the other. Three players is two people on Empire, one person on the Rebels. Okay. And four players is two on each. Sure. And they have a few separate rules, and like you get to do a few other extra things, which are which is nice when you're playing the four-player game versus when you're playing the two-player game. But in general, it's just about the same game. The difference here is that the goals of each one are completely different. The Rebel player... It wants to meet certain objectives in order to get their objective marker on the track, which is on the same track as the turn marker. He wants the two of them to meet. Okay. So it's a race against time. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to become more popular and gain support like through these objectives throughout the Empire, whereas the Empire's goal is to pretty much destroy the rebel base. Okay. As soon as the rebel base is destroyed, the game is over. Okay, so you, the rebels are basically on a clock, and the more objectives they can accomplish faster, the yeah. sooner, you know, the fewer turns the game takes, the less chance the Imperials have to destroy their base. Yes, yeah, so the, the more objectives and like the, the faster the two of them meet, and usually I think the, the way the game is designed is that they will meet in the middle, just about. Sure. But, you know, at that point, it gets really tense because the Imperial player has this deck of cards that are like the probe cards. Mm-hmm. And what they can do is they can uh, have actions uh, and like at the end of every turn, they get to draw two of them. But then there are certain actions that they can draw that th- they can look at more of them. And what happens is they draw these cards and these this is the deck that has all the car- all the uh, planets other than the ones that are Imperial controlled at the very beginning. And the rebel player looks through all of them and chooses which one is their base. Mm. And so when they do, they they then the imperial player draws two at a time and like looks and is like, oh, okay, so they can't be here or here. They can't okay. be this, these other places. So every turn they get closer and closer to figuring out which one is the rebel base because they can also if they land on any planet. So, you know, the rebel fleet is going through, and if they land on any planet, the rebel player has to tell the Imperial player whether or not they see they found the base. Okay, interesting. So it's it's definitely something that keeps it from getting stale. Because, you know, if the Imperial's only objective was 
destroy the rebel base and you know you follow the movie canon yeah. the rebel base is in the same place every time that would probably get pretty boring yeah yeah no it's very much it has that aspect that you know you don't the rebel uh, the imperial player never knows and the rebel player can also you know just switch the base at some point Oh, okay. There, there's a mechanic that you can pretty much do a Hoth-type escape from, sure. from the uh, the planet and move to a different base. Okay, interesting. So there is that as well. And so it has that really, really nice asymmetry, which is something that you don't usually see. And like, it can be really interesting because the last when I played, first of all, the Rebels start with so many fewer units. Oh, of course. Like The Imperium has ton of units and like production centers and everything like that so there is no way really for you to compete on the galactic scale with with the imperials mm -hmm. but as the rebels you, it's because you have different goals it doesn't really matter as much and the goals at the very beginning it's funny that the the level one goals are actually more difficult i believe than the level two and three goals which are in a stack oh really so it's done in a very interesting way and in general i really did enjoy the game it is long, a lot of strategy in there, uh, but it really came down to the wire. So my friend and I were playing, and it came down to had he been one further away from the planet that I had my rebel base on, I would have won. Oh, wow. But he was right within reach with his last guy. He moved into the rebel base, and, he, and I did not have enough to defend against him, and therefore he won. It was literally his last move that made, let him win, and otherwise I would have won already. Well, that's pretty great. I mean, yeah. that's that's a hallmark of a well-designed game when you can be, mm -hmm. you know, legitimately that that close to like a photo finish. Yeah, though he did mention one thing: is the game itself might not really have that much replayability, because even though you do have the same mechanics of you know choosing where the rebel base is and all that kind of stuff. I could see it becoming a little bit stale with just the way it plays. It, it's the kind of game where I think if you play it like, you know, once, maybe twice a year, just like Twilight Imperium 3, it's th that, that'll keep it still pretty interesting, but this is not a kind of game that you can play on a weekly, bi-weekly basis or anything like that. This is definitely an every once in a while pick it up and play it again. Sure. Bust it out and have, you know, a big Star Wars weekend and then yeah. put it away for a while. Exactly. Oh, cool. Exactly. Well... On the complete opposite end of that spectrum, I actually had a chance to play a game that you purchased uh, for myself and my girlfriend recently, uh, Fairy Tale. It was a Christmas present from you, and it's a lot of fun. It's pretty standard card drafting mechanics. You know, you have your hand of five cards, and you pick one, put it down, get the, the stack from the next person, pick one, put it down, so on and so forth. And you've got different colors of cards that have different effects. You know, they say score this many points or score points equal to this many times however many of this other card that you have so there's lots of interrelations between the cards but there's also a couple of really sort of unique mechanics on the one hand you've got when you play your cards some of them are just straightforward get this many points but others of them have what's called a flip or unflip mechanic that says you know this card is worth six points but when you play it you have to flip over a card from the same color. So, you know, if you have another card that's maybe only worth one, you can flip that and you've just netted yourself five points. But if you're playing it out first and you don't have any other cards of that color, well, then you have no choice but to flip your six and you end up scoring zero points. But then you've got other cards that are lower point value that allow you to unflip. 
And it's an interesting sort of balance between, okay, do I just go for straight high point values at the expense of turning over a bunch of my cards? Or do I try to make sure that everything's face up at the, at the end of the game because only face up cards can be scored? And of course, your opponent has cards that can flip your cards over as well. So it, it kind of keeps that tension there. But then the other thing that I really appreciate about it is that even though you draft five cards, you're only playing three cards in a round. So there's a, a formalized process by which you can hate draft. So, you know, you can look across the board and you see, okay, your opponent is building uh, lots of fairy, which is the red suit. And you say, okay, well, this is a really strong fairy card, or it synergizes really well with something that they have. I'm just going to put this in my hand, and I have absolutely zero intention of playing it, but now they're not going to get 12 points. Exactly. Um, and I appreciate that that's institutionalized, because a lot of times in drafting games, you make a decision. It's an either-or. You know, you either do something to help yourself, or you do something to hinder your opponent. And so the fact that there's room for you to do both makes it less of a choice, which I think I really appreciate because I'm always I have a hard time making that choice. I'm always like, no, I want to build my own engine. I, I don't want to attack my opponent. But this way, I kind of have a, a built in buffer and I can do that. I've been playing quite a few games with the flip mechanic lately. We have Phase, we have uh, Fairy Tale, and then Flip City. I, mean, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, I maybe it's it's a popular space that designers are exploring. We'll see. We'll yeah. See, hopefully, a few other cool games come out with that. Yep. But that's what we've been playing. There she blows. New Bedford sighted off the starboard bow. And uh, yeah, that's how we're going to kick off our review of New Bedford, our favorite game about whaling that we've ever played. Yeah, I don't think I've played another one, but I definitely mean, a very good game. It's hard not to be the best when you're the only one. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about how this game works. Right. So it's got a couple of different mechanics, but the first one, the first one that's going to come up every phase of the game is just a pretty standard worker placement. You've got your actions that you can do that are to start with at the center of the board. Um, so, you know, you've got things that can get you resources and those resources are timber, food and brick. Um, you've got the action that allows you to build other buildings, which then have actions on them so that you can sort of progressively expand the things that you can do. And then you've got the general store, which allows you to sell resources in exchange for money. Yeah, and one of the cool things about the way that actions work here is that you have a bonus for being the first person to do an action. So, or at least that's the case for anything that's in the middle sheet, like the, uh, the town center that you start off with. So you go ahead and when you place, for example, on the forest, when you're getting wood, you will get two wood, which anyone can get, and you can place, other people can place meeples on there and get those two wood. But if you're the first person, you also get an extra wood. Or on the town center or town hall, when you're building a building, it decreases the cost of one building by one resource of your choice. So it has really cool extra mechanic there. The other buildings that you build later on can only be used by one meeple in that round. So if, there, if someone has already used it, unfortunately, it is off limits. Right. And when you do build a building, it goes in front of you and you can use it for free, but other people can put their meeples on it by paying you one gold. Mm -hmm. um, so there's very much sort of an action economy 
type of thing that you see in a lot of worker placement games. You have to decide, okay, well, you know, my plan was to harvest lumber, but maybe now that's not the most efficient thing for me to do. And I can, in fact, afford to wait till next turn to harvest lumber. And this turn, I'm going to, you know, do whatever. Exactly. But in addition to the the town squares, the buildings that farm the town square or the buildings that you can build, there are other actions that you can take involving your ships. So in order to send out a ship, which forms one of the other core mechanics of the game, which we'll get into, you have to first prepare it by spending wood. And if you're the first player to do that on a turn, you spend less wood. And then after it's prepared, you have to send it out to the sea by spending food. And now the amount of food that you spend is dependent on how far out you want the ship to go. So you can go out as far as six spaces, and that will affect how you take whales versus how other people take whales with the other primary mechanic, whaling itself. Yeah, so whaling is the core of this game, pretty much, because it's a game about that. So uh, it's a game about how New Bedford was a town built up by whaling. And so when you send your ships out, you have two ships uh, at all times that you can send out. And the way that it works is you have a bag full of whales. It's the ocean bag. That's what is possible to get. At the beginning of each game, you put in a certain number of whales based on how many players there are. The other thing is that there are also empty sea tokens in there. The, those have nothing. You're out there and, oh, well, there's no whales. During the whaling phase, you start with moving all of the ships back one space, and then you draw whales equal to one plus the number of ships that are out. When you do that, the person who is furthest out gets first choice of whales. And you take those, put them on your ship, and everyone else takes the whales. Now, if your ship had been moved into the returning spot, which is the last one on the bottom, that means that your whaling trip is over. So now you have to pretty much process the whales, and this costs money. So based on the number of, uh, and the type of whale that you have, you can have, for the most part, three types of whales. You have the right whales, which are the most common, the bowhead whales, which are like medium-sized whales, and then the sperm whales, which are the rarest. So based on what types of whales and what combination you have in your ship that just returned, you have to pay money in order to get those and to have those whales. So pretty much like, you know, preparing them, just being able to port them and that kind of stuff. So right whales cost $2 and they give you one point. Then bowheads cost $4 and give you two points. And then sperm whales cost $8 and give you four points. And this is one of the main point scoring mechanics of the entire game, which is getting those back. But you might not have enough money. Right, which is why it's really important to, first of all, manage your money in addition with your meeples. So you can take city actions to accumulate resources, sell resources. You can stop at the bank to acquire more money. Or, barring all of that, in the absolute worst case scenario, what you can do instead of processing your whales and scoring them as points, you can sell them when you arrive at port. So whales sell for half of the cost essentially to process them so if you have a sperm whale if you have a money you can spend that money and end up with four points at the end of the game or if you don't and you have other whales that you need to process then you can sell that whale for four money and use that to process you know 
right whales, bowhead whales, any combination thereof. Mm -hmm. And so you ensure that you have other points and not just have to offload all of your whales. Money is itself worth a very small number of points, but really the bulk of your points are going to come from the whales themselves, which means money management is really just a, a sort of middleman to acquiring and rendering more whales. So when you sell or auction those whales off when you don't have enough money to pay for them, the other players can actually choose to buy them at full price. So they can buy that to process them and then put them in their like whale's stash, and that'll give them the points. So selling is not only something that you can do for money, but it is a benefit that if someone else has a lot of money, they can actually buy them off of you kind of thing. And that's not something that you can choose to do. It's, it goes in turn order and people go, do you want to buy it? No. Next, do you want to buy it? No. Do you want to buy it? No. Okay, that one's gone now. So that is another consideration to think about. And especially since your ships can hold uh, as many whales as you'd like, it can be a really big issue if you sent yours out all the way and then kept using other actions to keep it your ship out. And then you have to have a really large sum of money at the end of the game in order to process all those. Right. It's a very delicate balance uh, between, you know, making sure that you have your ships out there acquiring whales and just having enough money, just sheer money in order to be able to process those whales when you arrive back. But one of the other things that I think is most interesting about the game is the way that it simulates overwhaling, essentially, um, because we mentioned that in addition to the whales that are in the canvas bag, you've also got empty ocean tiles. So say you pull out, say there's three ships that are currently out. You pull out four whale tokens. You've got uh, a bowhead, two right whales, and one ocean. Well, obviously, the whales are going to get snatched up and put on people's boats, and then they're going to remain, after the ship returns, on people's tableau for the remainder of the game. That's where they'll stay until they're scored. But the ocean tile is going to go back in the bag, which means over the course of the game, which lasts 12 turns, you're ending up with proportionally more ocean in the bag. And so it's much less likely that you're actually going to encounter whales. And this is this is something that I particularly appreciate, you know, for its sort of historical accuracy. And I know the designers of the game took really great pains to make sure that their game was historically accurate. You know, they talked to the New Bedford Historical Society about, okay, you know, well, what sorts of buildings would have been in the town at this time? What sorts of industries would have formed? What would have been the effects of whaling on, you know, the ecology? And so it, it really just shows a depth of attention, I think, that I really appreciate. It, it comes through and it says to me that the designers treated this with a labor of love. I agree completely. I love that part of this game. And also they have blurbs within the rules just talking about, you know, oh, the triworks. This was actually a thing that existed in New Bedford. And like, here is what it did. Or, you know, Ambergris, which is a special tile that you can get uh, with like a promo pack. And it talks about, you know, what it was, what it was used for, and like why it's this valuable. And there are just some really cool interesting historical tidbits scattered throughout the entire game, throughout the manual, throughout everything. So it's definitely very well done, very thoroughly done. And thematically, I think that this is one of my favorite and most thematic mechanics with the uh, with the actual like ocean bag that as you keep going, 
the, the proportion of ocean to whale, uh, simulating the overwhaling without having to, you know, force it on you. The mechanic just works, is extremely simple, and makes sense. Agreed. So these are all the mechanics pretty much in play in the game. So at the end of the game, you have the scoring. And scoring, majority of that is done through the actual whales that you have. Uh, and, you know, they're worth however many points are on the actual card. Plus, you get one point per building that you have. And you can actually buy and build these other buildings that don't really give you an action, but instead give you an end game point benefit. So there are buildings that give you points per type of whale, that, or like per one type, a number of one type of whale that you have, or points per number of buildings you have, and other things like that. Right. So you've got all of these things coming into play, and this is just in the base game, and they end up at your victory point total. Then with the expansion, it adds uh, a number of different things. On the one hand, you've just got more building tiles to choose from. Um, you've got different types of buildings. They allow different types of actions. They can sort of change the flow of how it plays. Um, and at the beginning of the game, you can either randomly pick, you know, which tiles you're playing with. You can choose, you know, this many from the base game, this many from the expansion, so on and so forth. But the other thing that the expansion adds that's really fairly interesting are ship's log cards. So these are two different types of things. There's providence and omens. Providence tend to be good and omens tend to be bad. A lot of times omens will be things that you can inflict on other people, whereas providence are good things that happen to you. And so the way that these work, each turn a new version of each of those cards is flipped up and then while a ship is out to sea, instead of taking a whale, so say you know, there's four ships out, five tiles are drawn, four of them are oceans. Then instead of taking one of those ocean tiles or, you know, not taking anything, then a ship can choose to take one of the cards from the ship's log. And, the, you know, in some cases they'll have an instantaneous effect. They'll say, you know, when this is taken, each opponent pays you one wood for each ship that they have out. Uh, versus others of them can have effects that you can activate later on in the game. So they can say, at the beginning of each action phase, do this. At the end of the game, before scoring, do this. So they just add a lot of versatility and a lot of depth, and I think it's a really interesting sort of mechanic. Some of them can even just directly add points to your final total. Mm -hmm. So it can, it can turn it from a binary of, oh, I have whales, or oh, I don't have whales, into sort of a strategic decision of, hmm, you know, I could take this right whale and maybe get two points or one point at the end of the game, or, you know, I could take this ship's log card and inflict some damage on my opponents or give myself some resources that I can use next turn as a sort of springboard. So I really appreciate that it adds an extra element. The other thing that is added, I think, as we mentioned earlier, uh, to, with the expansion is the fact that you can put five players. Right, yeah. And that's just nice because it really just rounds out the, the game. And I did get to play it with five players, and it still works extremely well. And uh, definitely does not really have that many balance issues. And is just pretty well done in that case. Agreed. So, no game is perfect. That's right. That's what we always say. Let's talk about some of the ways that New Bedford could be improved or some of the things that we're not really as happy about with the game. 
Right. The first thing that I noticed when we were setting up our most recent game of New Bedford is that if you have the expansion, there's nothing denoting which tiles belong to the expansion. Um, there's an expansion rule book, and that says, you know, these are the building tiles that came with this expansion. If you're using them in the game, this is how you should set it up. You know, take four from the base game, five from the expansion, so on and so forth. But there's no marker to tell you, you know, there's no mechanism for you to easily sort those into two different piles, which if you have the expansion is something you're probably going to either have to or want to do each of your games. And so even just having, you know, a little expansion symbol in the bottom right corner would go a long way towards making it much less of a hassle to set up an expansion game. Exactly. That's the case for a lot of games that have expansions. And if they don't have that little symbol or something like that to show that this is an expansion card, it can be a little bit annoying. But along with that, just the tile selection mechanism can be a little bit problematic because especially if you're doing anything randomly, like we did this time, we set up a, a game of New Bedford before we recorded, played through it, and pretty much one of the tiles was completely useless. Mm -hmm. There was no reason to build it because we didn't have any of the other tiles that it referenced. Right, and this was a victory tile too, so this was something that could have affected endgame scoring pretty dramatically if it had been relevant at all. Mm -hmm. And they do mitigate this a little bit through the you know, themed selections and that kind of stuff that you can do uh, for the the tiles. They give you, you know, if you want to theme your game in a certain way, here is the uh, tile list that you should use and that kind of stuff. But that's all the way in the back of a rule book that you can see after the tiles. And so it's a little bit annoying. It would be really nice if they also had a label for, you know, this is a suggested tile for a two-player game or a three- to four-player game. Because right. that is also something that every single time you put up this game, even just the base game, depending on the number of players, you're, you're never using all the tiles. So you have to decide which ones to use. And if you're playing a two-player game, which I do pretty often with this one, it is a hassle trying to figure out, look in the back of the thing, and it's like, uh, okay, these four or these six tiles are uh, the two-player tiles. Let's right. find them out of all of the other tiles as well. So just something that could be improved with that. And along the same lines, just a few of the things would be really useful to have a cheat sheet almost. Definitely. Just something that gives you a little bit more information about, you know, exactly how things work. And I mean, they have the board, player board that has like a little bit, but, you know, just having something written down would be nice, a little extra card or even in like the space where you keep the whales or something like that, have it nicely laid out. Like what is the turn order, how it works and that kind of stuff. Agreed. But in spite of these flaws, what do we think? Overall feel, final rating, what do you give it? I'm going to give this one a buy it because I really enjoyed the mechanics of the game. It is one of the quickest worker placement games that you can play. The 12 rounds go by really, really quickly and it never really feels unsatisfying. It feels like it's a good time. It still has the strategic depth because you're trying different strategies and seeing like, you know, do I want to keep mine out? Is it worth it for me to pay, for example, you to keep my ship out by using your lighthouse? Or would I rather want to do a quick cycle by using a different card that I can get? 
And I think that it has enough variation and enough strategic possibilities to really keep the game going for a while. Like you can replay it quite a few times. I'm going to partially agree. I'm actually going to do an unprecedented split review. Um, so I think the base game, absolutely a buy it. I think thematically it's just so unique. It's got a lot of fun flavor to it. Um, and I also think that the core mechanics work really well together. The expansion, however, I'm going to go ahead and just give it a play it. I think it adds variety to the base game, but I don't think it really improves on what's already there. I don't think it, you know, fixes anything mechanically. I don't think it adds really compelling new mechanics. I think it just takes the, you know, buy a tile, build up your your engine, harvest some whales mechanic and expands on it. I don't think that it's necessary, but I do think that, you know, if someone's got a copy, go ahead, play with it. It adds some fun. It adds some variety. It's uh, it's definitely worth the play, but I don't think worth the buy. All right. Well, as we always do, let's compare this to a few other types of games. So one of the games that I want to talk about here is Caverna. The New Bedford is definitely a worker placement game, but it has that other unique aspect of, you know, going and whaling. And that's how you use some of your money and that's how you get a lot of the points. Now, Caverna is also very much a Euro-style worker placement game. And it also has a cool aspect of going on, you know, these raids or adventures and that kind of stuff in the dungeon. And so it, they both have that worker placement aspect and also that extra little part that can give you both more resources. It can also give you a lot of victory points. So if you like New Bedford and you like the worker placement aspect of it with that extra other twist, I highly recommend Caverna if you're looking for something a lot heavier. Caverna is both physically and mentally <laughs> a much heavier game. So it's very good. I highly recommend it, but definitely read the rules beforehand as well as probably watching a video about how to play because otherwise you will get shell shock opening the box. <laughs> right. Um, in the same vein, uh, the vein of you've got sort of two different things that you have going on. Puerto Rico comes to mind a lot when I think of New Bedford because the management of the town aspect in New Bedford and the management of your city in Puerto Rico are, to my mind, very, very similar. You know, you've got sorts of progressive actions that you're building up. You have the potential to buy victory buildings that give you different amounts of points based on objectives that you've accomplished throughout the game. And then the only thing that really changes is that, you know, in Puerto Rico, you've got management of a plantation, whereas in New Bedford, you're taking care of your whaling. But it's it's very much the same sort of you use one of your engines to reinforce your other engine. And it's it's got that, you know, sort of not collaborative, but synergistic building element where one thing reinforces another and it all works together ideally in a cohesive whole so if you enjoy puerto rico i do think that you'll enjoy new bedford definitely pick it up and give it a shot and the third game is actually one that i just played pretty recently for the first time and that is lords of waterdeep so lords of waterdeep is a DD themed game and the way that it works is you also have the worker placement of all the different main squares that you have in the middle of the board. But then one of the aspects that is very similar to New Bedford is the fact that you build buildings 
and then other people can use your your buildings and you gain a benefit from it so you know you're building up buildings and you're claiming them as your own and uh someone else uses them you get a benefit either usually denoted by the type of building that you have so you can get another uh certain resource or cube or other things like that and i really like that aspect that you know you can build the infrastructure and then gain a lot from it not just you know the points and that kind of stuff so i think that those three are pretty good comparisons to new bedford and if you like those you like new bedford and vice versa Thank you for joining us for our review of New Bedford. We hope you enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in next week when we'll be reviewing the Codenames franchise, including Codenames Original, Codenames Deep Undercover, and Codenames Pictures. Also, be on the lookout for our YouTube video with a Century in Review coming soon.